0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 237th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. This is our first episode of the 2018-2019 film awards season. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a terrific 41-year-old actor who made his name in a series of biopics about African-American icons, as Jackie Robinson in 2013's 42, James Brown in 2014's Get On Up, and Thurgood Marshall in 2017's Marshall, and who was catapulted to superstardom through his big-screen portrayal of the revolutionary Marvel comic superhero, Black Panther, first seen in 2016's Captain America Civil War, and then at the center of 2018's Black Panther one of this year's best-reviewed and highest-grossing films, and now the subject of considerable Oscar buzz, Chadwick Bozeman. Black Panther, which was co-written and directed by the 32-year-old phenom Ryan Coogler, truly is a, well, Marvel. The $200 million 18th installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the first Marvel film to center on a black superhero, and the first Marvel film to feature a predominantly black cast. It debuted to what was then the fifth highest grossing and is now the sixth highest grossing opening weekend in history, taking in $202 million, and then remained atop the box office charts for the next four weekends as well. It now stands as 2018's highest grossing movie domestically, with a $700 million haul, and second highest grossing movie worldwide, with a haul of $1.3 billion, behind only another Marvel film, Avengers Infinity War. And, with a 97% favorable rating on RottenTomatoes.com, it is one of the year's 10 most critically acclaimed films. Much of Black Panther's success is attributable to the commanding performance of Bozeman as T'Challa, the king and protector of the fictional African nation of Wakanda, who becomes, when necessary, Black Panther. Over the course of our conversation, Bozeman and I discuss his experience as a black man in America, and his personal relationship with Africa, How the tragic death of one friend led him to pursue writing for the first time, and the tragic death of another led him to write the play that first brought him to L.A. Why he might not be an actor at all, if not for Felicia Rashad and Denzel Washington. How he weighed the honor and challenges of playing great black men in films against the fear of being typecast. What led him to Black Panther and to insist on playing T'Challa with an African accent. What he makes of the film's cultural significance, particularly during the Trump era how he feels about the Academy's controversial decision to introduce a new Oscar for Outstanding Achievement in Popular Film on top of the Best Picture Oscar, and how it might impact Black Panther, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my friend and colleague Stephen Galloway, THR's Executive Editor of Features, to preview the film awards season that will get underway this week in Venice and Telluride, and then head to Toronto next week. Stephen, thanks for coming in.
1: My pleasure.
0: So... Venice and Toronto announced their lineups in advance. Telluride doesn't, but we can sort of deduce what's going there by the classifications of the films that are going to Venice and Toronto. They call it an international premiere or North American premiere or whatever. So we, at this point, even though it hasn't started yet, kind of know what's going to be where. And it seems like the big three films that are going to be at all three of these festivals are Alfonso Cuaron's Roma from Netflix, Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favorite from Fox Searchlight, And a film that was at the center of your THR cover story this week, Damien Chazelle's First Man from Universal. So let's begin with those, and specifically with First Man. Why are these movies generating, obviously, sight unseen buzz at this point?
1: First Man for two reasons. One is it's the first movie by Damien Chazelle since he won the Oscar for Best Director and very conspicuously didn't for Best Picture. (laughs) And I've also seen two sequences that were simply astonishing. Mm -hmm. And I've sat through quite a bit of the color timing and the recording. I was just blown away by what I saw. Now, whether the whole film equals those two sequences is going to be the test. Because it's on a scale unlike anything he's done before. Whiplash, La La Land, anything, right? And what I saw indicates that he can really manage the scale. Mm -hmm. Whether the narrative is equal, I don't know. I read the book it's based on. It's about the life of Neil Armstrong. Mm -hmm. And I just want to
0: quickly add that Hulu has a series with Sean Penn that's about to debut called The First, which is also about (laughs) space exploration. So people are going to have to keep those straight. It's interesting that Chazelle with La La Land to First Man is going from sort of smaller, somewhat personal to epic. But Alfonso Cuaron is going from (laughs) Gravity, this giant space movie, to a very personal movie from what I understand, a black and white Spanish language movie called Roma. That is one that is highly anticipated, not least because Netflix is going to be pushing it. But also, then we come to Yorgos Lanthimos is the favorite, the third that I had mentioned. He's a, a bit of a wacky filmmaker, but in some, I love The Lobster. I know it's divisive and so are his other films, but this one has a hell of a cast.
1: Well, let's just pause on Roma for a second, because one of the things that's so interesting about Cuaron is he's always shuttled between the two. In some ways, between Spanish language films and Hollywood films, right. you know, right from when he did The Little Princess, mm-hmm. his first American film. And of course, he did what's often considered the best Harry Potter movie. Yes, yeah. So I agree to go from Gravity, which was an enormous $130 million plus movie that I loved. Yeah, me too back to what is said to be his best film is fascinating and and admirable. And it's largely autobiographical about the family and the maid who holds this family together. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing an interview with Quaron a few years ago where he talked about growing up Mm -hmm. and his family. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Well, so those are the
0: kind of three highest profile going in that doesn't mean they're going to be the three best coming out of course there we love when there are surprises and over the years you know Toronto has produced Juno Telluride various others that we didn't know about even coming in by the way
1: if we're talking about surprises of course what fascinated me was we went into Telluride Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago with La La Land having extraordinary buzz and being already the film to beat beat. and then it became the unbeatable film until it was beaten but I remember us going to this Moonlight, right. at Telluride, and, right. and being astonished by that film. It's true. And I thought, why has nobody told me about this? This is magnificent. So I'm hoping. Yeah, we want praying we would love that. Yeah. there'll
0: be another Moonlight. Absolutely. Well, interestingly enough, Barry Jenkins, who made Moonlight, is back with a film as well. His first film since that. It is called If Beale Street Could Talk. It is from Annapurna. The, the strange thing about that, though, is Barry Jenkins has been so associated with the Telluride Film Festival. He was a part of an intern program there, then programmed shorts for them. I think he still does even. Very closely associated with them. But as best we can tell, unless there's some huge shocker, this latest movie is not going to Telluride. Instead, it's going to have its world premiere at Toronto and then screen kind of in a, in a really poetic way since it's a James Baldwin adaptation at the New York Film Festival, but in a one-off in Harlem at the Apollo Theater. So it's good enough to get in the New York Film Festival, so it's strange that it wouldn't also be a Telluride, but we'll see what that's all about. But before, I think it's about
1: one very simple thing yeah. because I've been desperately yeah. trying to get to see that movie. Right. You know, I put together our roundtables. Right. And I want to see some of the cast. And right. I've heard there's an actor who's magnificent, but I want to see her. Mm-hmm. You know, what you realize when you're sitting in an editing room is these guys are sometimes really up against the gun and simply can't deliver it a week earlier. And I think that's the case here. He's very law to tell you. Yes, right? I, I would have thought. But a week uh, or maybe two difference is... A finished film and an unfinished film. True.
0: Well, I, I hope that's what it is. Venice, though, is the first up. Venice, it starts August 29th, runs through September 8th. So really, Telluride overlaps entirely with it. It's a different vibe in Venice. It's a lot of splashy, big red carpet premieres, fashions a consideration, all of that. In addition to the big three that we've talked about, they have several Netflix movies there, partly because I think can and Netflix were unable to come to terms this year. So a lot of the movies that would have premiered at Cannes are now going to Venice, such as perhaps Paul Greengrass's 22nd of July, the Coen Brothers anthology series movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and others of that sort. But one of the big ones that I think people will really be keeping an eye on in Venice is Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born, starring Lady Gaga. It's then going to skip Telluride and then go to Toronto. So it's going to be
1: a little while before very many people in North America get to see it. But what's the buzz on that? Well, there's been great buzz about it. And there was one review that leaked and then was withdrawn, yes, I saw that. which basically said Lady Gaga is terrific. That's always been the big question yeah, mark here. Yeah, can she act? Can she act? I'm not surprised because Bradley Cooper's an astonishing actor. Mm-hmm. And when you think this is the guy who not only has played magnificently in american sniper and in david o russell's films but also did the elephant man on stage with yeah. no makeup i saw it, it was amazing don't underestimate yeah. his talent so i don't think he's going to cast an actress who can't deliver right so i'm really betting big time on her. i'm very curious to see if the movie is as, is as good as she's meant to be what's interesting with the netflix lineup this year is from what i've heard and from what i've seen yeah it's magnificent. Yeah. So you've got Roma, which at this early stage is almost the front runner. Yeah. And then Private Life we both from love. Sundance, yeah. we loved. And yeah. I think Catherine Hahn could be the dark horse of yeah. the leading actress race. We haven't seen the others yet. Right. So this is the Netflix lineup. Plus, <laughs> it has Lisa Tayback, who right. has a history of backing the winners or coming very close. This as in is the awards lines.
0: consultant who had been independent. It's now been brought in-house at Netflix. Big move by them. They've won two Oscars. One of them was documentary short. And then this past year, they won documentary feature. But they would like to win a major Oscar. And they're putting their chips on Roma this year. It's unclear how Netflix is going to be received still because of the fact this, this age-old issue that they've been dealing with. Are they going to give a proper theatrical release to these films when theaters don't want them? So they're still trying to figure that out. Meanwhile, Telluride, which is America's foremost gathering of true, true cineasts, I think you would say as much as, if not more than Sundance, is going to take place over Labor Day weekend. As always, that's August 31st to September 3rd. And in addition to the big ones that we've already mentioned, Fox Searchlight's also bringing Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is Melissa McCarthy in a dramatic part, The Old Man and the Gun, which is Robert Redford's swan song as an actor. And then you've got a few others that we've been hearing a lot about. Jason Reitman's The Front Runner with Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart, Jan DeMange's White Boy Rick, and on and on and on. Just to sort of set the scene of Telluride in contrast to Venice or Toronto, this is a small town, no big red carpets or or premiere-type setups, the only people who can afford to make that trip or who choose to go all the way out to Telluride are people who are real lovers of cinema, and it makes for an interesting environment for
1: the birth of a film, right? Yeah, it's the influencers. By the way, the rich influencers, yes. it's literally thousands of dollars by the time you pay for the plane, the hotel, and their very expensive movie pass. Right. But it sends waves through the press, the media, Hollywood, about what to watch. So it's an extraordinarily important launch for a movie. And it's fascinating because you know the moment you've seen it, this is one to watch. Right. Darkest Hour last year, Shape of Water. Yeah. I remember us going to the screening yeah. and thinking, oh, we the, got I, right? I really felt at that point this could be the winner. You do get a quick read of things because,
0: as you said, most of the people who are going to be covering the race for the whole season are there and so you know you can just walking out of a movie talk to a
1: few people and sort of get a feel how it's going big thing for me is just walking and listening to what people say and i remember listening to the buzz after darkest hour about gary oldman thinking oh there you go
0: exactly well toronto follows very soon after telluride i think i come back monday have tuesday here and then go off on wednesday but toronto is very different toronto is the huge lineup hundreds of films big premieres, and really it's a launching pad for if you're looking to take advantage of press opportunities in a different sense, not so much get a little buzz going in the industry, but launch a movie commercially as well. And they are going to have not a ton of movies that won't have already been seen at Venice or Telluride. They will have, as we said, if Bill Street could talk, but also I guess the other highly anticipated premieres would be Beautiful Boy, from the director of the Foreign Language Oscar nominee a few years ago, The Broken Circle Breakdown. That's with Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell. And then you have Dan Fogelman, the guy behind This Is Us. He has a film called Life Itself. And Steve McQueen, who directed 12 Years a Slave, is now back with a more genre, commercial type film, Widows, for Big Fox. Peter Hedges, Ben is back with Lucas Hedges and Julia Roberts. And we can go on with others, but... Toronto is a very different sort of thing. It's more, can your movie
1: stay afloat with a big audience? Yes, and from our point of view, what's interesting is also, will a movie get interest enough if it hasn't got a distributor to land one? Right. It always throws a bit of a wrench in the works because we then have to figure out, is this movie going to be in this year's awards race? I right. remember last year the with Glenn Close <laughs> and The Wife, <laughs> right. we were thinking forever, should we put her on a round table, right. or do we wait? And of course, it's, that's going to be one of the contenders this year. Right. And in fact, Crash...
0: Did the same thing. Crash hmm. premiered at the two thousand four TIFF, was held for release until two thousand five, and then one Best Picture in oh. two thousand six. So wow, I it's a long yeah. trajectory uh-huh. sometimes. But I think there's more room for a total discovery at Toronto because there's just no way to know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with that many films.
1: If you could only see one film, yeah, in these upcoming festivals, which would it be? First Man. Oh, really? How about you? I think Roma. I must
0: admit. Well, the good news is within a week, we will have seen both. <laughs> All right, Stephen Galloway, thanks so much. My pleasure. And now for my interview with Chadwick Bozeman, which was recorded at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles. Chadwick, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just some basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
2: Thank you for having me, first off. I was born and raised in Anderson, South Carolina, relatively small town. My mom was a nurse. My dad, he worked at basically a cotton mill, BASF, and he had a very, very small upholstery company that was mostly a word of mouth, like he basically did it in our backyard. He had a shop in in, in the backyard, and he just worked from there, and he could upholster anything, furniture, household furniture, boats, cars, nice. you name it. He could he could upholster it.
0: And I read your one of three. Is that right? That's right. Were movies and movies or TV a big part of life growing up?
2: I wouldn't say more than than normal. Like you know, we loved television. We loved you know films, just like any normal family would. But not like we watched every film there was. And I think the the main thing that we we would do is especially in the summertime. You know, I'm close with with a lot of my cousins, and we would take trips to the movie theater as a kid. And I remember the main thing I remember about those trips is that I would always have my shoes on the wrong feet. <laughs> <laughs> you were just in a hurry. <laughs> I, would, I would always they would always have to like retie my shoes because I was the one that was going, and I would always fall asleep in all the movies. Yeah. So I remember, you know, movies being a fun thing for me. Just so I could be around my cousins and be be close to them. Yeah. At a certain point, I started paying attention to what was actually happening. <laughs> well, I, I read that reading was a we had big thing there. Yeah. That was for your mother, right? You better you better deliver, right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes she would have like a certain number of books that we had to read. I would try to get out of doing it so much so that I would at times, make up stories. Because <laughs> you were supposed to report I, back. I, I was supposed to report back what the <laughs> books were, and I would just make up a make up a book, right. you know? Which is mean? like, actually harder than, yeah. than just reading the book. That was the beginning of writing and acting it, it, for it, you. It was, <laughs> it was. So i just make up a book, and, it, and it, it, again, eventually I started paying attention right. as opposed to doing it the hard way. So prior to your junior year in high school.
0: What did you imagine you would do with your life? And then during your junior year in high school, what happened that kind of changed the path?
2: Prior to that year, you know, I I didn't know. Like, I was gifted with my hands. You know, I could draw. I would paint. You know, I was pretty good at math. So I saw, in in some ways, more of a a visual art career, more so than, than being in front of people. Like, it standing in front of people at all was terrifying to me so i didn't see myself doing this that's Mm -hmm, for sure mm -hmm. maybe architecture Mm -hmm. you know i like geometry yeah so those two things kind of go hand in hand Mm -hmm. you know i play sports so you know everybody thinks that they're gonna do what they (laughs) do what they actually play at that particular time and i was good but basketball yeah yeah but it truthfully it wasn't like i was like oh yeah i'm definitely gonna be in the nba one day that wasn't necessarily my track either. So I guess the answer is I didn't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't, the answer right. is I didn't know. There were a couple of things that sort of led me into the realm of storytelling. One of them was on my AAU basketball team. There was a friend of mine, a teammate who didn't go to my high school, went to, to a rival high school who was shot and, and killed. And, you know, in order to deal with that, I... Just started writing and realized, I guess, in the midst of it that I was writing a play. Mm-hmm. I couldn't re- necessarily define what what made a play a play, mm-hmm. what makes something a play and not a poem or a story. But what made it a play is that we, you know, we performed it. We got up and we performed it. And... Did it a few times. We performed it at like two different community centers that were connected to to churches. Then we performed it at a high school. So it was something that we, without knowing it, I was doing a tour. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know so and getting good feedback. Yeah, right? and getting getting great feedback from it. And between my junior year and senior year, that took me into my into my senior year. Still, didn't necessarily know that I was gonna end up, you know, studying theater at Howard. Mm -hmm. but in the course of trying to figure out like, okay, where are you going to go to school now? What are you going to do? It it became one of the choices. So I followed my passion.
0: So you graduated from high school in 95. You go off, as you just mentioned to Howard University in DC, which you have called, and I love this, a Wakanda in its own right. I saw a quote of yours where you're saying in its own way. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And I get what you're
2: saying, but maybe you can just elaborate a little bit. It, it's hard, it's hard to really explain what I'm saying unless you've been there. It's one of those things that you you have to experience. But you you just see like a, a lot of people talk about diversity and they're speaking of like and a, a diversity outside of the race. Yeah. And you know, there's diversity within the race. There's diversity. there's so many different types of black people mm-hmm. that you encounter when you're at a place like Howard in DC. D.C., which is also had the nickname Chocolate City <laughs> at that time. Right. So you encounter people from all, all over the diaspora, from different parts of the Caribbean, various countries in Africa, all around the United States, and black people from Europe, everywhere. every any, Anything you could possibly think of, you know, it was a person at Howard that was from there. And so you sort of experience this influx of culture, black culture that is diverse, black thought that is diverse, debating philosophies on what it means to be African or what it means to be black. That's within the school yeah. and around the school. And so all different types of music. So that experience is one that is, you know, it's hard to to describe it. To people that are not in right. not in that space, but for that reason, it had the nickname the Mecca, the school, mm-hmm. the Mecca. So it, it, it was it was known as this sort of like place where people of African descent came together and found each other and found themselves.
0: And I read, I believe it's true that while you're there, first of all, at the same time, I think is Tanahasi Coats, right?
2: Yeah, part of the time, part yes. of the time, yes, yeah. Yes. But
0: also, you're working at a African bookstore, you
2: is that right? <laughs> Did I ever say that? I think so. Is it true? No. It's like have you been have you been spying on me? Like, <laughs> what have
1: you been
0: doing? You also were inspired to go to Africa for the first time, right? That's true,
2: yep. yep. Ghana? Why y- Ghana? Yeah. Well, I had a I had a professor, Mike Malone, who has since passed, who was going to Ghana because the National Theater was basically taking some of the rituals for various different ethnic groups in Ghana, and they were taking those performances that, in some cases, they would be more of a communal experience, more of a circular mm-hmm. experience, if you if you talked about blocking. Mm-hmm. And so as a director and choreographer, he was taking those performances and placing them in a proscenium setting so that they could could be viewed from a stage. Mm-hmm. It was a performance research slash, you know, in some ways it felt like it was like a archaeological yeah, <laughs> yeah. research as well. And so I was his flunky. I was his assistant. And so I just went there, learned a lot just being on the outskirts of that process and got to to influence that process at the same time and just just to be in Ghana doing something cool and, and did it mean a lot to you on sort of the you know, we see
0: this, you know, as just an example in Black Panther, how much it means to some people to get
2: back to their roots. Did that mean something to you? Uh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, the the first time that you get off the plane and step on the ground in this place that has that has been, you know, sort of you've been talking about it, you've been, you know, using it as a place to identify yourself. But but to, to have never been there is part of it is not it's not real. It's not real to you until you actually touch the ground and until you actually meet people that look like you Mm -hmm. there and I mean and when I say look like you I don't just mean that they're the same color you're like oh that just that looks like my cousin Mm -hmm. from (laughs) that looks like the kid from around the block and it literally is like that and you see that some things that you didn't know were cultural that they were connected that oh we do that same exact Mm -hmm. thing that's that's something that actually did survive the middle passage and slavery and Jim Crow Mm -hmm. that survived all of that and there's something that feels liberating yeah. about that about that experience. So, of course, I could go on and on just about that experience alone.
0: Again, those were just a few of the things you did at Howard. But I guess the main thing you did at Howard was you were pursuing this BFA in directing. Right. And that meant, I guess, directing undergraduate theater, directing short films. So how and why then do you end up in an acting class and not just any acting class, but Felicia
2: Rashad taught acting class? Well, part of the directing curriculum was to take acting classes. So from from the very first day that I began my matriculation, I was in acting classes Mm -hmm. with the acting students who came in at the same time. That curriculum was one in which there's a point with, within your last two years where you stopped taking the acting classes, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. up until, you know, your first, I would even say your first three years, you're taking all the same classes, all the acting classes that the, the acting students are taking. And that's because the advisor, Vera Katz, who was an amazing directing and acting teacher, didn't believe that directors could truly understand an actor's process and give them usable notes, Mm -hmm. usable direction, unless they understood how to talk to actors. And you couldn't understand how to talk to actors if you'd never been one. So in in order to to lead a person to not just a performance, but an inspired performance, you have to know how to ask the right questions. The reason why I was in that acting class is because I was essentially still a student of acting, but I didn't believe her mm-hmm. meaning I didn't believe Vera Katz right, right. was right. You know, <laughs> I have come to find out she was, was. <laughs> 100% right. right. 100% right. Because even now you ain't as, as an actor and I'm probably every actor that, that hears this will know exactly what I'm saying. You encounter directors and you have to reinterpret what they say. Yeah. <laughs> you like, yeah. you have to translate right, it into right. something that's usable for you. Is very rare for you to meet a director who says things in the language that you speak as an right. director. That said, Felicia Rashad is an alumni uh-huh. of Howard, as well as Debbie Allen. Yeah, and she, Felicia Rashad, she just, she basically you know offered to to teach this class. She would come in once a week and teach a master class. She would work with a certain number of students during that time period. But if even if you weren't blessed enough for her to touch you on that Mm -hmm. particular day to actually touch your craft, you could learn from, you know, watching other people who were doing that. And so, you know, I got the opportunity to do both, to both, you know, actually do a scene in front of her and to watch her help someone else do a scene. Mm -hmm. And she developed a relationship. It was actually over two years that she worked in this way. Mm -hmm. The first year, she really only taught I think two or three classes. The second year, she did it every week mm-hmm. because it just caught on so yeah. so well. And it was closed. It wasn't something that everybody got. It wasn't like, you know, you would think if, you, if something like this happened that it would be broadcast. Right. And I think some people probably did want that to happen. But she was so particular about our growth and development and not making this a thing that was like Hollywood. Right. She wanted to be intimate. She wanted to be about the craft. And so we developed a relationship with her. It was, you know, everybody that was in that space. And there were, I want to say it was nine of us who, as that relationship continued, she she was like, you know, there's this program that I would like some of you to do in Oxford. And so we auditioned. You know, we auditioned for that, for that program. Some of us got in. And so when it came down to paying for this, it was, it was, you know, too expensive for me and my parents to add to what was, you know, already an expensive education. Because this would have been a summer program. This would have been a summer program. This would have been an additional thing. And so she basically found some friends that would, that would help us to supplement that. And, and at the
0: only at the end of that whole experience, at the end of that whole summer, did you find out who you had to write for
2: that? Yeah. So, you know, I got I received a letter that said, you know, thank you for coming. And I still have the letter. I, I don't remember the exact words of it, but I still have the letter. It told me, you said, your benefactor is, is Mr. Denzel Washington. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so what? this was about it, the year 2000. Yeah. So, you know, you get the letter and you're kind of like, wait a minute. Let me put that, let me fold that back right. up, put that back in the envelope and then open it again okay. and make sure it actually said what I think it said. Did it say right. that? Mama, look at this. <laughs> like it was, it was kind of like that. So have you ever had the chance to, to speak
0: with him about that?
2: Yes. No, nah, recently he's funny. At the Black Panther, the the first time I actually talked to him about it, because of course I wrote a letter, you know, because I I asked Felicia Shazzle, well, what do I do? Do Write a letter and thank thank him, thank him that, you know, she told us all write a letter and thank the person who helped you do this. And we all did. And so I did at that time. There's no way he would have remembered that this kid that wrote me this letter is this guy that is now actually working right, in the industry. Right. Recently, when we did the Black Panther premiere in New York, I came into the red carpet and my publicist said, yo, Dizel's about to come in. Do you want to talk to him? I said, oh, yeah, because she knew mm-hmm, that story. Mm-hmm. And I had never told anybody about it. You know, mainly I hadn't, I hadn't told anyone because I didn't ever want... You know, you have these moments, you have people that... Very often want to use something like that to try to get ahead, and mm-hmm. I never wanted to do that. Right. I never wanted to say, "Oh yeah, he he did this for me, so right. therefore now I should." I even ha- now have, you know, people coming at me asking me to do the same yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. and I'm like, "That's not how it happened. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different that's, process. That's not how, that's right. not how that occurred." <laughs> and so, you know, I'm all for helping people, but it's got to be with the right spirit and the right, right heart. You know, I always wanted to make sure that I was respectful to him and talk to him about it in a private setting. And so he came in and I said, hey, you might not notice, but... You know, you paid for me to go to this program in Oxford. He was like, "Oh, oh, so, so, you owe me money. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm here. I'm, right, I'm to, here collect. to collect,
0: yeah."
2: <laughs> like, and so I was, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah." I was, I was like, "Well, <laughs> Yeah I can't give it to you now, not, right. not at this moment. <laughs> you no, know, yeah. but I don't, I don't have it on me at right. this moment." Yeah, it well. was, it was great, and he's been. Wonderful. He's yeah. everything that you would think he would be. You know, we've had some conversations after that and yeah, it's just it's a it's a blessing to like have waited yeah, and yeah. waited to now that's nice to yeah. to actually to have that that convo with him.
0: Well, you came back from that time in Oxford, finished Howard in 2000, but you were not it's not like you were suddenly converted to I'm now going to be an actor, right? You were mm-hmm. still on the track of primarily wanting to be a writer-director, you end up in Brooklyn, if I remember correctly, because I'll remind you of something there's no reason for you to remember, but in 2014, the week that you got cast in Black Panther in New York, we sat down and did a variation of this kind of an interview, Mm -hmm. and I was amazed to hear how you spent those next few years right out of Howard, because it's not easy to get somebody to believe in you as a writer-director-director, when you're starting out and you still have to pay the bills, but you, you've made a decision not to do what a lot of people do, which is go wait tables or do something on the side. For what reason? Instead you were willing to anything to, to sort of stay involved with the craft instead of doing something not involved with the craft. Why? Well, I
2: think it's easy to have backup plans. And I think this is a craft. It's something that you have to practice. It's not something that you can put down. And you have to stay in the mode of telling stories. And the more you stay in that mode, the the more keen the muscle is. You don't necessarily have to be acting to study acting, but you do have to be thinking, you know, an actor prepares. Mm -hmm. You You have to be thinking like one. You have to be thinking like a director and thinking like a writer. And so if you are, I don't think there's anything wrong with you know, waiting tables or doing whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you do, as long as when you, you leave every day, you're like, man, I can use that in that story. Right. <laughs> yeah. I can use that guy as a character right. or I can use that moment in the story that I already have. You know, we could add that to you. have. I think you have to always be in that mode or the people that are in that mode are going to be a, a step ahead. Yeah, of you. Yeah. And so I think, for me I just one I never believed in that backup plan and two I I enjoy it at, at the end of the day it's like I enjoy doing doing what I did then on the same level as I enjoy what I'm doing now when I did summer stock mm-hmm. in Ithaca as a director mm-hmm. not as an actor mm-hmm. I enjoy directing those plays mm-hmm. just as much as I enjoy doing Black Panther. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed touring with the hip hop theater festival mm-hmm. just as much as I enjoy doing martial. Mm-hmm. There's no less enjoyment in these things, and you were doing a lot of teaching too Doing te- now now the teaching part I enjoy the teaching <laughs> a little less. i I enjoy the teaching i enjoy i enjoyed yeah. the kids' right. because, because they you learn when you teach right one of the greatest ways you learn is by teaching. What I didn't enjoy is that those checks came yeah. Inconsistently. Right. <laughs> <laughs> makes it hard. Yeah. 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 yeah it, it makes it a little different, but I think you have to, you have to do what you love doing. Yeah. And ultimately success is not based upon what other people think. Right. You know, at this point people can say, Oh, he's successful. It's easy for them to Less see it. overnight. <laughs> yeah. But like I would be paying my bills, you know what I'm saying? Doing the things, some of the things that I listed, you know, if I wrote a play and, it was done in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be able to pay my bills for mm-hmm. months, mm-hmm. but I would go home and still and have that. You have a have an uncle or a cousin say something like, well, I guess you're going to make it one day. Right. You know, and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> like, as far as I'm concerned, like, you know, mm-hmm. nothing about what it means to be successful in this. Right. You were so, making it, yeah, yeah. So if I'm, I pay my bills, just like you pay your bills, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's the patronizing thing. All yeah, actors are yeah, creative people. Yeah, yeah. Like that's how I saw it. So for me, I just wanted to be be doing what I love to do, right? So the first,
0: it seems like really high profile acting specific screen job would have been soap opera. 2003 all my children i think it looks like that was the the first cr- sure. major credit sure and you have talked about the fact that
2: it didn't end well why was that <laughs> oh wow i forgot that this interview would come <laughs> after after saying that <laughs> 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 oh my god it, it didn't end well because it wasn't for me at the end of the day it did end well right because yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't for me but it it You know, I I feel like I left Howard with a manifesto, I guess that's the best way to say Mm it, of the type of work that I would want to do. And when I say that, I mean that literally. I literally had a professor who said, write a manifesto of what you want to do when you leave. This is the work you want to do. Mm -hmm. And it didn't fit it. Because they were playing on stereotypes, right? Right, exactly right. And... It didn't excite me, you know. The human exchange is always gonna be exciting. If the if the person is being real, the real emotions are being passed, the real intentions are being acted, real manipulation is happening, all that all that's gonna be exciting. But what I wasn't excited about was the perpetuation of the stereotype and the fact that the producers were unwilling right. to listen. Because you raised the concern and they said goodbye. I, I, raised the, I raised the concern. Like, see, that happens all the time, right. even now. Right. It happens almost on everything you work on. There's going to be something that pops up where something is still in that box. And you have to decide whether or not you you can play in the box, whether you can make people look at this box differently, or whether we need to break out of this box mm-hmm. altogether. Mm-hmm. It happens on every project. Right? I could even... Probably find something in Black Panther that we were like, okay, now I can't do that. Cause oh, we're coming to that. Yeah, Don't worry, yeah. That'll but, be I'm, a, but I'm not going to tell you what that. No, one no. Is. I, I, we, I might have but, an idea, but. but it's like you're constantly asking the question. The difference now is people are like, oh yeah, okay, let's listen to what he's saying. Right. There have been very, I would have to say, very few moments where people were as closed ears. As that, even when they won't listen to everything, they will at least listen to something.
0: Well, it's interesting; a lot can change in fifteen years. That's what we're talking about here. But (laughs) so, basically, after that, I know another kind of major thing that happened along the way was another friend of yours at Howard, your senior year or your your final year at Howard. I think had been killed, as had happened in high school. In this case, it was in a interaction with the police. Mm -hmm. You write a play about it again, it seems like you'd figure this was a good way to channel emotions and feelings and whatever, and this was called Deep Azure. 2006, it wins the Joseph Jefferson Award for New Work. This is sort of the Chicago equivalent of the Tony. Mm-hmm. Is that what sort of led you to move to LA two years after that? Was there a, now a desire to
2: have you come out as a writer initially? Yeah, there were people that, had, that saw the play and read it, and basically were like, "Hey, let's." You know, there were a few different instances, and I was somewhat receptive to that call, and in other ways not receptive because because I didn't I didn't know what LA was, you know. So there was this thought, "Hey, if you can you turn that into a, can you turn that into a film?" And I said, oh, "I don't know if that'll work as a mm-hmm. film." And then and you know I I did write a film script mm-hmm. of it and it maybe could have been a great film we we move forward to a certain point and it you know it, it sort of fell apart and then there were other people that I know I remember I had a meeting at, at Paramount with a with an exec who wanted me to write some things so I think I I wasn't quite ready for what LA is I didn't understand it yet mm-hmm. but that experience did lay the groundwork for me for me to begin to understand cuz this thing that they call Hollywood is mm-hmm. it's a game that you have to understand how to play mm-hmm it's a strategy to it and so I think I needed a little bit more time to sort of formulate like okay if I'm gonna do that right can I do it in without losing my sense of artistry right as I do it
0: and really for the next few years after that what you were it seems to have been sustained by in the literal way financially you're doing a lot of guest parts on TV, almost always the lead guest parts. So you were getting story arcs, you were getting things to do. But the way I understand it, it was sort of this strange thing where in terms of leading to the big break, what most people would assume is looking at the big break being 42, what connects the dots between the guest parts and getting 42 was this weird unexpected interaction with Tarantino, right? He's doing Django Unchained. He wants to meet with you, but it's not to play the part that Jamie Foxx ended up playing. It's not to do the Samuel L. Jackson part, so I don't even know which part it was, but what happened
2: there that sort of connects the dots to 42? You know, I read the script, and the amazing thing about Tarantino is that he can equally entice you and offend (laughs) You know, and so I read, I read the script and I say that with, with great admiration for her, I read the script and I was like, what the, (laughs) like, and there were, there were points where I was like, you know, as a writer, I was like, man, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. Like just as a lyricist. Mm You know, I'm intrigued by this. I've watched his movies. I watched all his movies. But now I was like, I have to meet the person that wrote this. Mm -hmm. Right. I have to understand him because it's so it's so like in the middle of both of those things. Like I need to understand who this person is because you shouldn't really judge a writer until, you know, till you know who they are. Mm -hmm. Like you have to understand the context Mm -hmm. and the voice behind a person that's saying something. And so as far as where I was in my career the roles the roles that were available my agent was like there's nothing in here for you like you you, if anything because at this point I had gotten to that place where I was like right on right at the at the roof of that level right and it's like you either bust through or you or you don't. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have made sense for you to take up one of, the, if it wasn't one of those main yeah. parts. so, but I was like, nah, nah, I gotta go in for it. Right. I have to go in, I have to meet him and I have to see what this is in person like to actually do it. And so I got there and the casting director, Vicky Thomas, was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> she, she literally saw me outside and said, you should not be here, what are you doing here? I said, I just had to come, I, I, want, I want to meet him. Mm-hmm. And so, He came in and they called everybody else in. Didn't call me in. Like, we're not gonna see you for this for any role in this movie. And I sat outside and waited. And that group, because they went in as groups, that group left, and he called me in by myself. He said, Chadwick, how you doing, man? He said, I've been watching your work. I said, really? (laughs) And then he rolled off TV shows that he had watched with me in it, ABC Family, Lincoln Heights. Right. So that was the main one. Right. He, and he literally went That's through short, went through my story yeah. arc <laughs> on Lincoln Heights right. and, and did part of a scene. He literally, <laughs> you came in and you said this, and he said that, and you did. I said stop. <laughs> I said you're lying. You have not been watching. <laughs> you have not been watching <laughs> any any of my work. He was like, no, no. So he proved it. Right. He said, listen does this role and he basically described a role that wasn't it was in the movie but it wasn't developed mm-hmm. and he was like i've been thinking this and i think maybe you can do it and so you don't see it because he never i didn't end up not doing right, it i right. remember getting 42 right v- vicky thomas said vicky thomas also cast 42 so she was impressed that he was impressed by you yeah, I mean, maybe she was impressed by me or her Anyway, own. yeah, right, right. Know, because she did say there's nothing in here for you. Right, so, right, She's, she yeah, realized so, already. So, but what I know is that casting was happening simultaneously. You know, Ultimately, I wasn't available to do Django right. because I was going to baseball practice.
0: So, <laughs> Well, so she now connects you with Brian Helgeland for 42. I remember it being a very big deal that there was this relatively unknown person at that time getting such a major part in a film about, you know, the first major great film about Jackie Robinson, you were going to be put to the test here. And I know you, as you say, you were, there was the physical aspect. There's a lot of prep. You better look like you can play baseball. You better, and particularly the distinct way that he had his batting stance or led off a base or whatever. But I wonder on more of a spiritual level or whatever you would call it, you grew up in the South From what I understand, you encountered your own share even years after Jackie Robinson of racist behavior there. Unfortunately, I think it's sort of inevitable in these days in in parts of the country. Do you think that that helped you to understand Jackie Robinson when you had to go play just your own experiences with racism?
2: Yeah, sure. I think there's no way to compare what i have experienced in my lifetime to what he had to experience thank god yeah. you know that what he he did and what many others did made it easier for me but i i certainly was able to pull from things that i that i knew and was able to like use direct references in certain scenes substitute just to just to get into his mind state so it definitely was helpful
0: you also i know spent some time with Jackie Robinson's widow, Rachel, and Hank Aaron and other people—that kind of thing—must also really help you get into the character.
2: Yeah, the beautiful thing about Rachel Robinson is that she still supports me even now. She right. came to the premiere for Get On Up. She, when we did the, there was a Q and A Q&A with Tana nehisi mm-hmm. uh, Lupita and I did. She came to that. That's great. You know, in, in Harlem at the Apollo. So she continues to be just a source, you know, you just need those people that those elders that will give you that light in the distance. And that will also tell you when you're not doing well, you know, so that (laughs) you need, you need those people. So she continues to be that.
0: I wonder if another one though, on that one, and this will be the last thing I'll ask you about 42, but just in terms of, in some ways, grooming yourself to become the man in the center of the spotlight as you are now all these years, you know, whatever, five years after 42. I know it probably feels like a lot has happened in five years, but the difference between then and now, was it helpful to be working opposite somebody like Harrison Ford, who is one of the few people who has been at the center of the storm to the extent
2: that you now are? Absolutely. Yeah, because the thing about it is, you know, and I I called him, just before Black Panther came out he always is able to bring it to bring all of this to to the place of reality like it's just life it's not extra life it's not super life it's it really is just life and you know watching how he dealt with certain things on on set even just fame and stardom being out and people chasing you around and all that stuff. He dealt with it in the most calm way and didn't sort of get caught up in himself. Like, th- there's certain things that I've seen him do that I just appreciated. It's simple stuff like, you know, you go out to dinner and he makes it a point to serve every person. And I hope he doesn't mind that I, that I, that I say this, but mm-hmm. I say it with love. Mm-hmm. Or we're on set. For forty two, and it's time to time to to end the day. He picks up a broom and starts sweeping. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I remember him saying is that this is blue collar work. Mm-hmm. You know that's what this is. Mm-hmm. You know people see it in a glamorous way, but if you don't have the same attitude that somebody that works blue collar does, right. you don't stick around for that that right. amount of time. You know you get caught up in yourself. So that Keys in to like, oh, it's just like my, I, that's what I've been doing. Yeah. That's what my dad did. Right. You know, that's right. the work ethic that you have to have is that this is blue collar work. That attitude, I'm sure, was put to the test when you get your next project.
0: You're going to, you know, you're asked to play James Brown and get on up. And there's no faking that. If you can't put in the time to do the, to learn the dance moves or to, <laughs> sing, even if it's a blurring of the voice or whatever, there's no shortcut there, right? I mean, I know you initially were almost laughed off the idea when they came to you for that. Well,
2: the thing is, is that it, it wasn't the work. It was that, you know, I felt like this is so easy to misunderstand James Brown. It's so easy to miss the psychology of the man and to be able to trust that a director a writer, a studio can capture that in a script and on screen. I was like, I, I, I don't know. Like I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And you, and you have to be able to dance. You have to really be able to, to pull that off. And so the only reason why I ended up taking the challenge is when I had a conversation with my, with my brother, he is a dancer, right? Well, no. So this not, is the other not, brother. This is the other brother. Okay, all right. This is the other brother. The priest. Yeah, yeah. He basically, I expected him to write it off, to be basically like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, you don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I had some other family members say, you can't dance. <laughs> you can't play no James Brown. Are you crazy? And they were only giving you, like, what, six weeks to get it together, Right. Yeah, it was close to two months. Two months. Close to two months. Not exactly, but close to it. Right. Before we had to, from the time we, you know, I said yes to actually arriving, and we shot in Natchez, Mississippi, to arriving in Natchez. Right. It was about seven weeks. And and when my cousin said, I said, well, actually, you know, I haven't danced a lot around you, but I actually can (laughs) dance. Like, it's just, can you dance like James Brown? Right, right. And so he basically said, I don't know, man, if you could pull that off, James Brown is one of the baddest men that's ever been on the planet. Right, if right. if you pull that off, you will be too. Right? <laughs> that was a good challenge. That's a, yeah, and I I he said it, and I was like, ah, nah, nah. Hung up the phone, and I went back to my computer, and I started pulling up YouTube videos of him dancing and him talking. So I remember it was the video when uh, he had just gotten into to trouble a situation with his wife, and it's a reporter trying to ask him questions about it and he keeps like diverting the questions right. <laughs> and it so is the moment i look good i smell good i feel good and i was like <laughs> i kept watching that video over and over right. and then i saw i saw what he was doing right i saw how smart he is right. and how he used what you projected onto him right to manipulate right let his That is why you love me, you know. Like, (laughs) like I was like, I was like, wait a minute, it's turning it around. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me watch this one more time. (laughs) And then I called. I was like, okay, here is what they got to do. I was like, we have to test out this dance, and they got to find somebody that can teach me this. If they can find somebody that can teach me how to do this, and then so they, you know, I met Akman Jones, Mm -hmm. AJ, who's worked with so many, so many R and B, hip hop artist and we talked about how we would do it and he was like yeah we just work, work together for a week and after I started doing it I was like I don't want to stop it you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying once we started breaking down what the movement was and what the it was almost almost like a tai chi like a mm-hmm. martial art what that dance is once we fell into that mode and trance of it I was like if I get to learn this it's not bad Did we we could do this film. You right. know what I'm saying? Let's get this script together and everything. And, and the conversations that I had with Tate were from the beginning, Tate was very, very enticing. And he just basically said, if you don't do well, just come in and read with me, meet with me. If you're not James Brown, you won't be James Brown. Right. So I, to be honest with you, I went into that meeting and being like, okay, I'm going to meet with him so he leaves me alone. Right. And when I met with him, I thought I had thrown the audition away. really. But my manager called me and said, "Hey, you need to look at this tape." Like, <laughs> and I I looked at it and I said, "Oh wow!" I said, "I actually see how I could do this." <laughs> so That's it's awesome. just one of those things where, again, the challenge of it. Yeah. It called me, and I just want. I, at a certain point, I couldn't turn it down because he. It's like he was calling me. Well, the most
0: you know outwardly obvious challenge is what we've been talking about. But you also the thing that I think maybe other actors, I would imagine, would hear and, and feel just as much for you is that the movie, structurally, people may remember, jumps all over his life, back and forth all over, 55, 17, 35, all different ages of his life, and was in no way, he's totally different person in all these different periods, and movies aren't shot in sequence usually, and it wasn't the case with this one. Right. So you, I don't even, I don't know if you chart these things out or how you orient yourself, but- that to me, when I kind of was reminded that things are not usually done in sequence, that's almost as impressive.
2: Yeah, we would come in there were some days in, in that I would be him when he was sixteen, seventeen, then I would be him <laughs> I'd be him in his in his fifties or sixties, and then I would be him in his thirties. It's crazy. And so I'm talking about in one day, and they would change the wigs. We change the wigs, and I have to like change whatever that mode is every day. So it it was it was insane because there was never it was almost never a day where I was just one version of him. The thing they had like 25 different wigs. (laughs) Jeez,
0: it's crazy. Well, the last pre Black Panther thing I want to ask you is just about a movie last year that I don't know if it got as much love as it deserved, but this was Marshall. You're playing Thurgood Marshall early in his life for Reginald Hudlin's film. I know, you know, you, you, when I think you've said when you get a script about Thurgood Marshall and you're expecting, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> give these grand moments in, in the courtroom or whatever. Here, he's, he's at a point in his life where he wasn't even able to, allowed to speak right. in the courtroom. So, you know, I wonder what you made of that, but also just the idea that I know even when we talked for Get On Up years before Marshall, you were a little concerned about being sort of typecast, typecast yeah. as the guy that you go to for biopics of great black men.
2: Right. So was that something that gave you any pause before doing Marshall? I couldn't even begin to tell you how many biopics have been sent to me, <laughs> offers. <laughs> I couldn't even begin to tell you how many it is. So I definitely would say that I it gave me pause. And the, the thing that made this one sort of break through was Reggie Mm -hmm. you know I I had developed a a relationship with Reggie you know where we you know we talked about Black Panther we talked to just just in general he's been very supportive you know I I knew that I wanted to work with him I even I saw something that he directed on stage Black Movie Night at the Hollywood Bowl the music yeah 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 love he does that and I was like this is so well done like I wanna do a movie with this dude. Like, yeah. you know, and I love his love love some of his older movies. So it was Reggie that sort of broke through and my agent had a relationship with Paula Wagner, who was a producer on it. Mm-hmm. And so grew to adore Paula as well. So that one it was the it was the people involved. And it was also the script. Yeah. You know, the script when when I read it, even you know, the the first draft that I read was just so it was so well done. I felt like it was a new take on a biopic because even when I read it, I said, you you actually don't have to know that this guy is Thurgood Marshall to appreciate this. You know, it, it, very often you see I was actually just telling a, a friend of mine who was auditioning for something for, for a biopic. Mm-hmm. And basically they were given a note that I didn't agree with from their agent <laughs> or whatever. And I said, no, the the people that are in the movie don't know that this person is going to become what we know them as today. Like, So, you know, it didn't have that sort of sentimental value to the person like already planning in it that we like our present day view. And so I ended up doing it because I think it just was it was just a good movie. Yeah. It was just to me, this is going to be a great movie. And I think that thing that you that you started the question with which is you know I wasn't giving the great speeches the courtroom speeches the fact that it had what seems like an unsolvable problem and I think in the original script it didn't have that thing of how does he now help this other attorney played by Josh Gatt to how does he help Sam Freeman get through this like and so I think once we found that I was like yeah you know He's still the lead of the movie. Right, right. He still, but he doesn't have to have the speeches. And it's the non, non-verbals are actually a lot of times harder to play than than, than verbals. So I said, this is actually a really, really, really huge challenge right. that people, they may not understand how difficult it is, but I will grow from this. Right.
0: All right. So <laughs> I want to go deep on Black Panther. Was Black Panther the comic book series? something you knew or cared about before you ever came to be associated with it. I remember reading something that you had kept journals or things where you referenced ideas about Black Panther before you were ever
2: in the conversation. Is that right? Yeah. I spoke of that manifesto. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and, you know, it, it fits that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it's one of those things where I go, oh, yeah, that's the that's the type of work that I want to do. So, of course, I was aware of the the comic book series. You know, and I knew that it it has a whole lot of dimension and color in it already, you know, the different iterations of it. But I knew that there were so many things that you could pull from that are actually not in the comic book as well. And so if you if you can bring that to the screen, you know, you can bring some of that experience that I that I had at the Mecca to the world in a way that that has never been done.
0: So it's 2014, you get a call while promoting Get On Up, I guess in Zurich, and it's from Kevin Feige,
2: guy who runs Marvel. And the Russo brothers and, and Nate Moore. And, right. And the, Victoria Lonza was also on that call, I believe. And they're I saying believe. to you, we want you to be Black
0: Panther, you don't have to come in and read for it, it's straight up offer, yes or no, and was that
2: a... Well, they didn't say we want you to be like. They said this character. There's this character. Oh, there's a character. Okay. There's this character that that we think you want to play. That we want you to play. <laughs> we can't say a lot about it right now because right. we're Marvel. Right. But don't tell your you, you know, we think we find a way to bring him into our movie universe. So, how long did you have to think about it? Because there were major
0: considerations, I, implications on your life. You, you know, you had some degree of fame already,
2: but this was going to kick it up a notch. Right. I don't feel like I questioned it because it's something that i had already as you said written down it was something that i had already put out into the ether in a sense that's a prayer yeah like if you've written like hey you know what would be cool in this movie in your journal you it. <laughs> and it shows up yeah you would be a fool to question it. So, yeah. so it was no questioning
0: so cut to el capitan theater in hollywood right you Downey. Evans, I think, were the three there. You know, you're announced to the world as, as this character. What did you have to do between then and 2016's Captain America Civil War, the first time we see him on screen, mm-hmm. to get yourself together physically, mentally, accent-wise, any of the different things that we now see manifest themselves, particularly in Black Panther, but already
2: by 2016, you had to have it coming together. Yeah, part of it was obviously physical. You know, the first thing I did was I went to go go train with the guy in New York, Grandmaster Bill McLeod, in, in a style called Sanukis. So I spent a lot of time with him. I had a strength and conditioning coach, Addison Henderson, who who still works with me on pretty much every movie. And yeah, I found a dialect coach from South Africa on D-Lay Nebulon. We shouldn't gloss over that though, because they were not always. No, I wasn't. Gonna, I wasn't going to gloss over it. I no, gonna, yeah, no, okay. Yeah. I want
1: to
0: make
2: sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. This is something you stood up for. I think it's important. Yeah, I decided in my research that the Wakandans would speak with a click, because the the some of the languages that have clicks are, are among the oldest on the planet. Of and, yeah. Yeah, I wanted that sound in there. And so there's there's different groups but but this South African one also brought with it this feeling of things that we knew. It makes you think of Mandela. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes you think of that that sort of esteem. And so there's a dynamic there that you could be this this symbol of peace and he wasn't always a symbol of peace. No. Although, but there's this symbol of peace along with this warrior. And so I was very sure about that, that it was osa, osa, osa. You know, that it was that feeling, that sound. They felt like, you know, it was maybe too much for an audience to take. They felt like, it, you know, would people be able to understand it through a whole movie? And if we do it now, we stuck with it. And, and I felt the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if I speak with a British accent, really? what's going to happen when I go home? Because that was the alternative, Either British or just with my American accent, yeah. and so you know maybe he studied in Europe, maybe he studied in the America's. You know, it felt to me like a deal breaker, mm-hmm. and having gone through situations like that before, where I was willing to like stand up for, yeah. it, I was like, well, here we go again. Yeah. So for them, I don't think it was that deep. I think I think they it was it was an opinion, it was something, but I I felt like you know, I didn't think. I don't think they were like we're going to fire you. No. But I was in that place where I was like no, this is such an important factor that if we lose this right now, what else are we going right. to throw away for the sake of making people feel comfortable. And so yes, that was a huge thing. Once we decided to do it, we, you know, we went for it, you know. So it it was to their credit. Yeah. You can't expect everybody to to have that same understanding, but for them to listen, you know, I give them like a the suit. Almost, I want to ask you
0: about because literally and figuratively, you put that on. What does that feel like? I mean, I, I think it's also metaphorically kind of interesting that sort of, in some ways, an apt metaphor for the black experience in America. For a long time, people had to
2: just take crap, collect it, and couldn't. To have a suit that they can, you're they collecting can, all they the crap, they can absorb, yeah. And, Gives it power. Yeah. To put it on, you know, there's, a lot of times people will talk about the power of wearing a mask. And that's something that you actually learn from, you know, Greek theater and African theater, that the mask actually gives you a power. Mm-hmm. That the clothes give you a certain power. So the first time that I put it on, now, now it was hard to breathe and it was hot, all that stuff. <laughs> but at the same time, you feel like a warrior. Mm-hmm. You feel like a knight, you know, you feel like a ninja. And so all of those references, you know, you start to embody that when you walk around in it. You know, there there are times I thought I would even say at times where it starts to feel like your skin. Mm -hmm. And that's when you that's when you have a really good day in it. Yeah. And when it starts to sort of support the physicality and movement that you have to to do in it. So it is helping you take a fall. It Mm -hmm. is helping you to stand up a little stronger. In those moments, you appreciate it because it actually is armor. Right. So production took
0: place mostly, I think, in Atlanta. I imagine it's a different feeling than any other set you've been on, just probably never been around that many people of color on a set around you before. Is
2: that fair to say? I would say it rivals Cause get on up had a quite quite a few people to come to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll, yeah, we'll no, stipulate but, that. But, but, but yeah, I would I would say it was a different experience. Like the experiences that that really really are ingrained as far as that goes are the Warrior Fall scenes. Mm-hmm. Particularly the first one with Mbaku. Yeah. Because it wasn't just the cast, the 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 core cast. Mm-hmm. It was the extras from the Jabari tribe. Yeah. It was all the people from Wakanda that were that showed up yeah, yeah. to participate. The tribesmen that showed up that are in the in the cliffs. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really there. Yeah. So what I love about that experience is that you were filming a ritual. And that scene embodies what I, I, and I would even say that Lupita, Denai and Ryan had an understanding of what the most important part of this film was. Like when I met with Ryan, before he actually took the job, we what we actually talked about was, how do you create a world? How do you create a culture? How do you create uh, people that have a a spiritual belief? They have politics, you know, they have a social order. How do you create that, you know what I'm saying? And how do you do it without appropriating things? How do you do it and at the same time you're making up something, but you're being authentic at the Mm -hmm. same time? It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And so for me, it was the reason why you, that's what I was writing in my journal. how do you do that and not insult? You know, how do you do it and have Africans not be upset with you mm-hmm. for what you did? Or African-Americans that know the culture or think they know the culture, right. not not get upset with you. Yeah. So for me, that scene and what happened in that scene had to be real. And so yeah. what what we experienced on those days was like even those people who were extras, those scenes were, they took weeks to shoot and they showed up even when it got hard they showed up when they when they their loved ones and, and parents or whatever yeah. at home said hey you don't need to go back out there it's too hot you know you're coming back here you're getting sick whatever right. and what, what they were experiencing was a real rites of passage and they knew it right they they knew that they you know, this is something that I'm. I'm never gonna see anything like this again unless I actually go right. to a real Baba Lao or somebody and do right. it. So it was something that you like. You can't. You can't buy that. You just can't buy it.
0: And for you, just on a personal level, being there on set, do you feel more or less pressure? I mean, on one hand, you're coming off these biopics where there are people who remember what these characters that you were playing were actually like. You're being compared to them here. You're playing a fictional character. But on the other hand, it's a very real character. It's anyone who's read those books, carries a lot of significance for a ton of people who haven't seen a character like that before in a major, certainly a Marvel movie. I'm thinking back to Jackie Robinson in the sense that if it didn't pan out well, there's a lot riding on that too. Like, you, Did you feel a sense of freedom because it wasn't a real person, but also perhaps burden because there's so much riding on this movie?
2: Ryan and I would compete for whose career would be over. <laughs> <laughs> whose career is done if this doesn't work. <laughs> right. And he he was always on the notion that yo, you can shoot another movie, but if i if this is if this is horrible and I'm done. I can't do anything else. <laughs> and I'd be like, nah man, I don't think I can do anything else after this. You can you can you You're can You're us. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we would compete on that. To be honest with you, I've already felt the pressure, that feeling of, oh, man, we have to get this right. Truthfully, I felt it more for everybody else. Mm-hmm. I felt it more for the audience mm-hmm. than for how the audience would basically just denounce me if I, <laughs> if if it was wrong. But I felt it more. I want. I just wanted us to give people the best version of the movie. And so, yes, I. You obviously feel the pressure, but it's not. I don't think it was. You know, just because the movie costs more doesn't mean that you feel. More pressure. Right. I felt that same pressure for for forty two and for get on up yeah, sure. and there for 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 Marshall and I felt that same pressure. It wasn't necessarily more, okay. and I and I would say that because you feel that when you hear and because you like I we want to give people a culture. When I hear people say Wakanda forever, if I go into a I just went into a Thai restaurant and the people in there were like doing the <laughs> sign and we love Wakanda, we right. love Wakanda. They actually are saying, we saw a real mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. We saw a real culture. That means everything. So that's what I was concerned about is that they wouldn't actually see that and right. feel that. This
0: movie, the way it opened, and the world that it opened into, on the one hand, it's gotta be hardening to see that you can have I think the what was then the fifth now the sixth biggest opening weekend ever stay at number one for five weeks highest grossing movie in America for the whole year on and on we can keep going great reviews all of that's gotta be very hardening on the other hand, it's coming into a world in which it's a year after almost exactly a year after Donald Trump took office, five months after Charlottesville, supposedly good people on both sides uh <laughs> and just eighteen days after. The president of the United States referred to African countries as shithole countries. So that's the climate in which this movie opened into. And I think in the future, people look, I know when I took film studies classes or stuff, they say, don't just look at the film, look at the culture that it came into and what does that tell you about it and how do you interpret its significance through that? So what's your take on the fact that that's the world that it opened into? Both sides of that coin.
2: The first thing I'm going to say is I love the fact that the world had this film at this particular time or at that particular time, because we're, we're still kind of in it. You know, films are can be escapism, you know, but I don't think this was escapism. I think this was aspirational. And the interesting thing about it is some people may say, well, that country doesn't exist. That's not real, you know, but we were pulling from all real things. We were pulling from the great empires. Mm -hmm. We were pulling from the hairstyles and the culture and the the clothing. We were pulling from a politics that politics, the mixtures of politics that exist. And we were trying to create not a perfect world, but a leader and a country that was aspirational, that gets it right. And so the fact that the world could look at that, and draw from it during this particular time, you know, we couldn't have... Only God can do that. Like, only something more powerful and more knowing than ourselves can place it in this particular time because the thought of actually doing this came to Feige and his crew. Obama was president. Mm -hmm. You know, we had no idea that Donald Trump would, would be president. We actually went into... We were going into production and... He won the campaign. We were like, oh my gosh. While you were on the set. Our prep was happening and he won the election. So I remember what that feeling was and I would basically say that, you know, the fact that we have this sort of divide in our country, the fact that it's not that those things didn't exist before, you know, in some ways it's better that if you have a sore, <laughs> if you have, let the sore be exposed. Right. If you have a cancer, do you want to know that that cancer is in mm-hmm. in the body, so that it can you can rid it, rid right. the body of of that cancer, and so the fact that this is medicine for that, you know, there's a line that Branch Ricky mm-hmm. says about Jackie Robinson. Mm-hmm. And he also says, one day there'll be little white boys that trying to be you. This movie is that. Mm-hmm. You've seen them. This, this I've seen little white Black Panthers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly on Halloween out there. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen many of them. Right. They it's the same. It's the same thing actually happening again. Right. That happened for Jackie Robinson. The fact that that's happening. The fact that this is healing. In some ways, this what's, you know, the next generation and the current generation, like I'm honored to be a part of that. And so in the face of Charlottesville, in the face of shithole countries, Mm -hmm. I love the fact that people have that to draw from and can combat it and have something to be proud of if they cannot be proud of their president. Right. This obviously you felt that I'm sure this
0: is an industry that really is behind this movie and proud of it and wants to celebrate it. They seem to be stumbling over themselves about how to do this in one regard, which is at our friends over at the Academy, who unfortunately I think also maybe dropped the ball with Get On Up, could have thrown some recognition that way a few years ago. But anyway, here we are now, and the conversation at the moment, which everyone's try- the, the puzzle everyone's trying to solve is, all right, so we've had for 90 years, now going into 91, a Best Picture Oscar. We also now are apparently going to have a category called most outstanding achievement in popular film. Right. Some people are concerned that, you know, it looked like Black Panther was a very likely and probably may still be a very likely best picture candidate. Now you have this other category. Does this other category, which it certainly is a very popular movie, does this mean that people will feel less inclined to vote for a movie like Black Panther for Best Picture, because it's a popular movie, we're certainly going to recognize it there. They're still figuring out what most popular, most outstanding achievement in popular film or whatever is. And I would hope that if it goes forward, it means that there's two places where people can recognize Black Panther. But I just wonder what your take as somebody, again, in the middle of all of this in a way is are you happy that there's this other place as well? Or is it something that's a little disconcerting? Well, I don't,
2: I don't, like you said, we don't know what it is. Right. So I I don't know whether to be happy about it or not. What I can say is that there's no campaign for popular film. Like if it's a campaign, it's for best picture. And and that's, that's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the notion or the, the idea of creating the popular film was so that there is a place to 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 honor this movie or these types of movies mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And I don't know if, if the intention was necessarily negative. But what I do know is that a good movie is a good movie. Mm-hmm. And clearly it doesn't matter how much money a movie makes in order for it to be a good movie, because if that was the case... The movies that get nominated to win right. <laughs> if it wouldn't get nominated if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter on both sides right if it doesn't matter if it made a lot of money or doesn't make a lot of money because at that point, what you would be saying is not that a movie is good but that it's elitist mm-hmm. right so I think for my money, mm-hmm. you know the only thing that matters is the level of difficulty always. What is the difficulty of the thing that you did mm-hmm. and do people appreciate what you did the quality of it the difficulty of it what we did was very difficult because mm-hmm. we created a world mm-hmm. we created a culture it doesn't exist in a world that you already know no nope. it's a world that we had to completely we had to create a religion a spirituality a politics we had to create an accent we had to pull from from different cultures to create clothing styles and Mm hairstyles. It's very much like a period piece Mm -hmm. in the way that you deal with hair and makeup and clothing. So you can't honor any period piece that you ever did technically more than you can this one. So as far as that's concerned, I dare any movie to try to compare to the difficulty of this one and the fact that so many people liked it. If you just say it's popular, that's elitist.
0: Right, because their point is that supposedly movies that the public like are not often enough represented. But I mean, if they if they were willing and able to nominate it in both places, you wouldn't mind that.
2: Again, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. <laughs> right. It's a don't, tough one. It's we interesting. We don't one. know. What, we don't know what it is. Right. We don't know what it is until we know what it is. Like I, c- I can't really say anything yeah. about it. Again, yeah, the campaign is only for the one that right. has always existed. <laughs> so, I hope that I
0: hope it gets everything it's eligible for, and I thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. man.